All right, welcome back to the Mysteria podcast. I'm Marcus De Silva. It's been quite some time since I last recorded. It's uh, one of those things that feels like a long time, but uh, in this case, it certainly has been a little while. And I am really excited to be speaking to Jacob Turner today. And to introduce Jacob, uh, Jacob is a lawyer and author based in the UK. He has acted for sovereign states such as Argentina, Greece, Russia, and Iraq. Turner holds law degrees from Oxford University and Harvard University and has lectured at universities including Oxford, Cambridge, and King's College London. He has previously worked as a speechwriter for a UN ambassador and as a clerk to a UK Supreme Court justice. Is quite the resume there. It's pretty awesome, I have to say, especially the um, the uh, working as a speechwriter and, and as a clerk. That's very cool, I have to say. <laughs> Thanks, Marcus. And uh, it's great to be here on the podcast. Very much, very much looking forward to our uh, conversation today. Yeah, me, me as well. I know we we had to reschedule this uh, once because of uh, of my schedule. So I've just been itching to get this one done. So I'm extremely excited for today. And so we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence from a, I guess, a variety of legal perspectives and possibly some ethical ones in there as well. Um, And so one of the, there's a, there's a chunk out of your book, actually, I'll hold that up for the camera. And uh, it's a really I mean, as obviously as a, a law nerd such as myself, it's fantastic reading to to get into some of these legal concepts. But for anybody, I think it I think it does a really good job at uh, articulating uh, complex ideas in a really palatable way, um, which is always good, you know, for for the general population as well to to get into some of these topics. And so to start off, there there's this chunk that I want to read. And it'll sort of lend itself to the to the first topic that we'll get into and uh, off to the races. So, uh, all right. So this is coming off of page 36. So, uh, oh, and actually, uh, the reason that I picked this particular uh, section is that one of the things that I really love about reading and researching is that in often cases, you're going to come across a, a chunk of text uh, or a quote and it will articulate something that you knew but couldn't articulate yourself. And that's always the great thing about uh, you know coming across great authors is that they're they're able to articulate these ideas in a way that feel um, that feel intuitive to you. So um, anyway, here we go. It may not be immediately obvious why law is relevant to the various industries and aspects of society affected by AI. In fact, legal regulation is as crucial to their smooth operation as it is to every other element in our lives. Just because we do not have daily interactions with lawyers, judges, courts, or the police does not mean that our legal system is not having an effect. Laws work even when they are not being used in courtrooms to convict criminals or to award damages to claimants. Indeed, laws are most effective when they are a silent background condition allowing parties to deal with each other in a fair and predictable atmosphere. The legal system is like oxygen. Day to day, we do not notice it. In fact, many readers will not have given any thought to their own breathing before coming to this paragraph. However, if the amount of oxygen in the air drops even by a small amount, life quickly becomes intolerable. 
The law plays a vital role in solving coordination problems, which arise where agents can choose from several options, none of which is obviously right or wrong, but where the system as a whole will only function correctly if everyone acts in a similar manner. It would not make sense to say, it would not make sense to say that it is better to drive on the right or the left as a general moral proposition, but the laws of traffic in England dictate that all must drive on the left because if people were allowed to choose for themselves, there would be chaos. So it's just, I, I really enjoyed that little bit. And, and so sort of one of the first topics that I want to get into, I mean, there's a few topics in that, in that paragraph for a couple paragraphs here that we could get into, but I think the first one is uh, obviously I have a law background. I went to law school, love it, total law geek the whole way and yourself, your, your area of practice is law. And so for people like you and I, it's kind of obvious that we'll be interested in these topics because this is what we do. This is our passion. Um, but I think kind of to kick off today's podcast for the first question would be um, as far as just lay people, everyday people concerned with their own lives, why should they be considering how AI um, has an effect on them? I think in most developed economies and even in economies where there's less economic development the amount of technology that is present in every aspect of our daily lives has increased hugely in the past 10-15 years with the advent not just of the internet but smartphones smart technology generally and the use of technology by major corporations as well as governments in order to make important decisions. With that, it's very difficult to disengage with the decisions that are being made about us using technology, whether it's something which seems relatively insignificant, like Spotify deciding what song you should listen to next, or YouTube promoting a video that you should watch, or perhaps things which are slightly more significant, like when you type into Google or another search engine a query and it gives you an answer and you then act upon that answer. You ask for which is the way to the nearest hospital and it tells you the route. These are increasingly meaningful decisions. But it's not just consumer technology that we engage with. It's also governmental technology, as I mentioned, decisions on whether you should be given benefits, decisions by banks as to whether you should be given a loan, decisions by employers as to whether you should be given a job or whether you should get a promotion. All of these things these days involve increasing amounts of, increasing amounts of technology and not just any technology. They involve increasing amounts of artificial intelligence. Now, I expect we may in a, uh, a little bit uh, get into a definition of what um, artificial intelligence means, so I won't preempt that, but in brief, if artificial intelligence is taking decisions about our lives, then we may want to have some kind of a say collectively as societies in the way in which artificial intelligence makes those decisions in the amount of information we are able to get about those decisions, how transparent or explainable those decisions should be. And finally, we may want to say that there are some areas that are just so important that artificial intelligence should never make decisions about us 
in that regard. And so consequently, regardless of what part of society you're from and how much or how little you engage with the legal system and the legal industry, I think the regulation of AI and the development of society's relationship with AI is an incredibly important thing for all of us. And the way in which that regulation and those relationships are modified and changed and created, that is all through the legal process. And so consequently, the laws which govern AI are, in my view, important to everyone. Yeah, you know, at the so at the start of your, um, I, I think it's actually the I think it's the first page of chapter one. Actually, you you open with the uh, very gruesome uh, murder scene from Crime and Punishment, um, rather infamous scene, um, and, and like the first question that you propose is, how would you interpret this situation differently if it was AI, if it was a robot that committed the murder, or if the robot was the victim? Um, and, and just that simple question instantly changes how you perceive that situation. And you started to get into it a little bit with your answer there, um, but just kind of to, to continue with that line of thought. What makes AI unique from a legal and ethical perspective, um, just from any other area of law? All laws which have been created to date in the past 4,000, 5,000 years ever since we have had laws are aimed at one thing, essentially, and that is the regulation of human choices, of human decision-making. So laws tell us what we can and can't do, how we should go about our lives. They tell us what the consequences will be of certain actions or inactions. And they're all focused on decisions made by people. If people don't have any discretion as to how they should go about their lives, then you wouldn't need any laws because there wouldn't be any choices. So laws regulate human choices. What we now have with artificial intelligence for the very first time in history is a non-human decision maker, which is capable of making complex and important decisions. And when I say that we have a non-human decision maker, this is where it's important to get into the definition of what I mean when I talk about AI. So by AI, I mean technology which is autonomous, which can take its own decisions independently of its human designers. And that can be contrasted with technology that is automated. So all traditional computer programs up until around about the last 10 or 15 years were simply automated logic trees. They followed the same um, pattern. If X, then Y, if Y, then Z. So that if you had a given input, you would always have the same given output. There was no discretion on the part of the computer program. Another way of putting it is to say that traditional computer programs are deterministic. AI programs, by contrast, are non-deterministic. They can develop their own methodologies for coming to a particular conclusion in such a way that 
the conclusions, the outputs, the recommendations made by AI programs are not necessarily predictable even to the programmers, and they're not necessarily explainable by the programmers themselves. And, and that marks them out as radically different from traditional computer programs. One type of AI technology is machine learning, and machine learning is currently the most technologically viable and the most commercially successful type of AI technology. But I don't define AI simply as machine learning because that would be under-inclusive. It may well be that in the future, we develop different, better technologies, for example, some kind of a biologically-based technology might be viable. There are um, experiments going on at the moment involving whole brain emulation as a um, means of creating AI. There are lots of other technological mechanisms that one could try to use to create this same effect of non-deterministic decision-making, of autonomy. And it's the autonomy which is key to AI. It's this ability of a non-human to make choices. And the reason, going back to the question why that is significant legally and ethically, is because laws were not designed for non-human decision makers. They were only designed for human decision makers. And they were also designed around a lot of the faculties and the limitations that humans have. For example, the law on mistake, the law on making contracts, the laws on negligence, where you cause somebody else harm by acting unreasonably. All of these things are very much linked to the way that humans think. And they don't necessarily tell us what the answer should be when a non-human decision has made, uh, when the non-human entity has made the relevant decision. So that is why uh, I suggest that AI is, is legally unique. And since I first wrote my book on the, the topic, uh, I think there has been a growing realization amongst politicians, lawyers, and policymakers around the world that AI does require new regulation in some way and that it's not going to be feasible simply to apply or attempt to apply our existing laws to AI because we'll swiftly get to insurmountable problems if we attempt to do that. And so the answer to that, because you're dealing with, uh, uh, as you said, a technology that has really never been seen before and you have a system that's not designed for artificial intelligence, it's designed for people, you know. Um, and so what's the approach then for for lawmakers, like, as, as far as, okay, well, I guess you have to recognize that it needs regulation, which I guess there is debate, you know, there. Um, but just generally speaking, how is how is the what, what is the approach then to ensuring that everything is regulated effectively? There are multiple different decisions that policymakers need to engage with, even after they've got over the initial hurdle, which, as you correctly observe, is a controversial one as to whether AI does need new regulation. And I'm not suggesting that in every area, all decisions made by AI need particular new regulation. Sometimes it may just be small tweaks of existing regulations. But that said, the Decisions that policymakers would need to engage with include, firstly, at a very initial level, who it should be that should write the laws. I think often we jump to 
asking what the laws should be on AI, what the regulations should be, but actually that's ignoring a really important preliminary question, which is who is capable of creating these laws? Who is best placed? Not just from a expertise basis, which is very important, but I think more important from a legitimacy basis. It may be that you can design the best possible set of laws for AI, but if those laws are not seen as legitimate by the population to whom they are supposed to apply, then they're likely to be rejected. We saw this, for example, in the UK with Brexit. There were a perfectly good set of laws from the EU that were widely helpful to the British public, laws allowing free movement of people, that you could move to Europe, you didn't have to use a visa to visit other areas of Europe. There are all sorts of helpful things that uh, these laws allowed, but they weren't seen as legitimate. They weren't seen as sufficiently democratically representative by a lot of the people, not all of the people, but a majority of the people in the UK. And consequently, that system of laws was rejected and, and Britain voted to uh, to leave the EU. So there is a danger with creating laws on AI that if you just give the lawmaking ability to some elite group who the general public may feel are out of touch or not representative or haven't engaged in sufficient consultation, then that may lead to a system of laws which is perfectly good from a substantive perspective, but which lacks the procedural legitimacy necessary. So that's, that's one question, um, who should be writing the laws? Uh, another question is, and this is particularly relevant in a common law system, so a system like the UK, the US, Canada, India, Australia, where judges have a uh, lawmaking power, judges can um, rule upon what the law is. Um, there's a question as to whether it should be the legislature, which is the um, uh, general uh, body that is typically elected and um, creates laws uh, in a um, in in the form of legislation, or whether it should be judges who who make the laws on a on a flexible case by case basis. So that's another thing that one needs to uh, to engage with. As a, as a, uh, a general answer, I, I I would suggest that it's better for the legislature to to make the laws and. At this point, I think it's worth saying that the types of lawmaking that I suggest in my book and that I advise clients on, these aren't just workable in a democracy, um, because lots of systems around the world are not democracies. A very large proportion of the world um, don't operate under a political system of democracy. So democracy is one way of having legitimacy, but it, it it doesn't need to be a democracy. What matters is what the people in the relevant jurisdiction, in the relevant country, what they think as giving rise to relevance. So, for example, in China, the Chinese Communist Party has uh, political legitimacy for a variety of reasons, uh, not many of which are linked to democracy. But that, that's fine because that's the way they, they function. So the key thing is, in any given political sphere, when you're making rules on AI, those rules need to follow the general way in which rules um, are given legitimacy. Um, and then once you 
are over that boundary, then to a certain extent, it's actually arbitrary what policy choices you make. And those policy choices may differ from country to country because there are different views and different political histories and, and, and traditions. But that first stage of choosing who should write the laws, who should enforce those laws, that is a, uh, a really crucial stage, which is it's important not to ignore. And as far as your argument for, you know, should it be legislators or or the judiciary? I mean, not necessarily like it has to be one or the other per se, but one has to, someone has to be driving the car at the end of the day. Um, and do you see it so far, or is it as simple to say that at least from the, the policymakers, their perspective on it may be more encompassing because they have to worry about their whole country and they also have to worry about how these laws may interact with other countries and and well actually i'll, I'll let you just run with that <laughs> in short i agree with all of what you've just said the advantage of legislators and policymakers over judges making laws is that the policymakers can take into account a far wider range of views. They can engage in public consultations, they can commission empirical studies, they can consider all of the stakeholders and all of the effects of what laws they wish to make. And there is no restriction on um, the ambit of those laws, at least subject to uh, the constitution of whatever country they're in. But broadly speaking, that will give the legislators pretty wide range in what laws they want to pass. By contrast, judges typically need to only look at the case which is in front of them. And their opinions on that case can be shaped by all sorts of things. It may be shaped by the particular facts of that case. It may be shaped by how good the legal teams are um, for either side. And that can in turn depend on the um, relative economic power of the parties who are arguing the case. It's sometimes said that hard cases make bad law. And I think that's correct, that um, generally speaking, when you've got a difficult factual or, or ethical uh, dilemma in front of the judiciary, um, then they're not best placed to make rules that are going to um, bind the whole of society. And I think judges certainly are well placed for making uh, difficult decisions at the edges of laws and for interpreting laws where it's not clear and for perhaps moving the law on where it needs to be updated in some way but doesn't necessarily need legislative input to, to make that update. So certainly common law systems can work very well, judge-made law systems can work very well, but when it comes to a fundamental shift in technology um, and in the effects of that technology that we are seeing with AI, I don't think that judges are in the best position to uh, create the new rules that we need to um, manage our relationship with that technology. Yeah, and you started to touch on it there. And, and one of the things that I've, I found really interesting about intellectual property law when I, when I took that in, in third year was that what was unique about that particular module compared to all the other types of law that you learn about is that there's a bit of an oversimplification, but it's effectively worldwide. It's not as simple as, you know, the criminal law in Canada is a criminal law in Canada. There's no 
real weight of it in a different jurisdiction. I mean, you know, again, that's a bit of an oversimplification, but generally speaking, that that is the idea. And what I found so striking about the IP law was that there actually is more of a, there's a lot more interaction internationally um, and, and across different countries as far as the, the regulation and um, enforcement of, you know, copyright or trademarks or patents or what have you. Uh, and certainly with AI, it seems to be that is also the case because the technology is not in a vacuum. And if you're talking about, you know, AI making um, algorithms on Facebook, for example, well, Facebook's used worldwide. So it gets complicated because now you're dealing with different countries and different jurisdictions and how do they handle their own, how do they handle issues in their country versus other countries? And, and as you pointed out, different regimes if you have a, you know, a, a democratic nation or you have a totalitarian um, a country that's run by a totalitarian regime, those are going to have an effect on how those laws are handled. Um, so I'll just kind of toss that to you. What are your thoughts on that? There certainly are some areas that lend themselves more to international regulation than others. One of these, as you mentioned, is intellectual property, where the currency of ideas can easily travel across borders. It's not like, say, uh, a regime governing road safety, where it only needs to govern the vehicles and the users within the geographic limits of a particular country. These aren't just areas which rely on new technology that require uh, international regulation. If, if one thinks back to the law of the sea, one of the very first areas of international law that the Dutch jurisprudent uh, uh, Grotius was writing on um, hundreds of years ago, um, there have for a very long time been uh, areas which lend themselves to international regulation because they're, they're problems which cross over different borders or which apply to um, elements which are not subject to borders. Space law is another good example of that. The law of the internet is another example of, of, of these things. Um, and likewise, I, I think to some extent, the law as applied to AI is an area which lends itself to international regulation. Um, that is because AI from its own internal perspective, it doesn't matter what country it's in. Uh, the program will seek to operate in the way in which it has been set up and established. Um, another point uh, with regards to the international regulation of AI is that as things stand, and we're starting to see changes here, um, but as things stand, there is very little binding law as yet um, in different jurisdictions around the world. And so there is an opportunity at the moment to create a harmonized set of laws and set of regulations which could apply regardless of where one is. And you can contrast that with other areas, for example, in, in terms of taxes or climate change, where there are very differing uh, regulations in different countries. And it's extremely hard 
to uh, persuade countries to change their regulations in order to have better coordination. We see this at the moment with the difficulties over getting global agreement on climate change, for example, where there are very different regimes. But we don't have that yet in AI. We may start to see it, though, over the next few years. So there are a multitude of reasons why it would be better and more efficient for us to develop <clears throat> international um, regulations for AI. Now, whether that will happen or not is a different question. Just because it would be sensible for something to happen doesn't mean that it's actually going to happen, because there are all sorts of other considerations which go into regulating AI. That said, I think that the early signs are reasonably promising from this perspective. And the reason I say that is because the <clears throat> regulation that we've started to see for AI being proposed in different jurisdictions around the world is actually pretty similar, regardless of where, where you are in the world. So uh, just last month, China uh, released a set of draft regulations on um, AI as used in algorithmic decision-making online, and it's also released a set of ethical principles um, to govern the use of AI within China. Um, and these actually resemble pretty closely the regulations, the draft regulations, which are being proposed in the EU, um, as well as the AI Bill of Rights, which was recently proposed by the White House um, in an article just last week. So what we what we see is even though there is not official coordination internationally necessarily, in fact, on a substantive basis, the content of what is being proposed actually looks pretty similar. So it's quite likely, at least at, at the moment, that if you're complying with the set of laws in, say, the EU, you're probably going to be complying with whatever the laws are on AI in the US and China as well, at least up to a point. I have a quick little tangent to then I want to uh, have a, a question relating to that. But one, one of the things that I find is always helpful, um, well, not just me, it's just human behavior. Um, you have your schemas and these schemas, a psychological term. And it's basically when you uh, are interpreting new information, you use old information that you already know to help you understand the new stuff. And it was kind of a goofy thing to say, um, especially because I give Marvel such a hard time on this podcast. I'm always talking crap about Marvel. Um, but the Iron Man, I'm not sure which, I think it was probably the second one or the, uh, yeah, I think it was either, the, I think it was the second one where they talk about the Iron Man suit and the questions that they propose is, this is a new, and it's a weapon, so it's a bit different, but there's some parallels between that and this just you know, just kind of help people understand a little bit, which is, you know, who governs this? It, it, you know, it, can we confiscate this weapon? Can we make this weapon? Can he, you know, can we compel Tony Stark to teach us how to make this thing so that we can use it? Um, but anyway, the point that the reason I'm bringing this up is that it's, it's interesting to, you know, to kind of help gauge your understanding of new content, especially if you're not coming from a law background, you're just a regular person listening to this. Um, you can kind of even think about it in those terms, you know, like how do different governments and pol policymakers, um, first of all, do they have to, and this is where I'll, I'll lend this back to you, which is that with this technology, because it is new and it is novel, you have to then construct, in quotes, 
um, an institution to solve the issue. And then you also have to worry about which you address the, the actual substantive content of those rules for enforcement. Um, and, and as far as like moving forward, it sounds like the, as you pointed out, like China has already proposed, I mean, it's a draft, but they're at least proposing it. And, and as well as the ethical side of it, because you have the, the laws, but you also have to address the ethics um, of it as well, um, because they, they go hand in hand. You really can't have one without the other. And the trajectory seems to be going okay, like you mentioned, but you know, as far as moving forward, is there a bit of urgency as well? Um, because, you know, time is a factor when it comes to this type of technology, um, as far as regulating and, and enforcing sensible rules. So I, I think that the, as you say, the, the ethics are really crucial um, in terms of being a first stage of um, setting rules for AI. I mean, laws are effectively just ethics put into put into practice. They are uh, a um, way of expressing our ethical views. And not, and not every um, ethical proposition is always reflected in a law. I mean, you can make somebody a, a promise to meet them to go to the cinema, and that's not legally binding. But the institution of a promise uh, and the idea of a legally binding promise, that is what forms the, the basis of a, of a contract. So with regards to AI, I think what, what first needs to happen is for us to work out our positions on the ethical questions that AI raises. Um, and those answers may differ from um, society to society. Um, but as a core, what, what I, I think we're seeing across a number of um, different fields is similar um, concerns arising from AI's use. Uh, one aspect that we see in every um, set of AI principles and every set of AI ethics is explainability and transparency. So the question of being able to interpret um, how an AI system has functioned, um, and also understand how it was built and why certain decisions were made in its design, what data was used uh, in terms of training it, who is responsible for its governance. Um, uh, and those sorts of questions, uh, it's very interesting to see the similarities between the codes that are coming out of Singapore, the UK, the EU, China. Um, so, so those sorts of things, um, there is general agreement, as, as well as areas like robustness and the ability to um, reassert human control if something goes wrong. So having a um, minimal level of certainty that the AI is going to function in the way that it's expected to function, that's, that's robustness and safety and security. Um, and the aspect of human control, I mean, that's something which is particularly interesting when it comes to AI. And a lot of the most uh, prominent scholars on AI have written in very powerful terms about the problems that, that could arise if we are not able to assert control over 
AI. Nick Bostrom writes about this in his uh, well-known book, Superintelligence. Professor Stuart Russell, one of the pioneers of the modern AI movement, recently wrote a book on uh, the need to be able to reassert human control. So <clears throat> these sorts of issues, again, we, we see them appearing um, in every single set or pretty much every single set of AI ethics. And, and I expect that we'll see those in the laws and regulations that apply to AI in, in due course. But it's worth noting also that there are multiple different ways in which laws and regulations could be created or could come about. They don't necessarily all have to come about through traditional lawmaking. One aspect of AI regulation that I'm very much in favour of is professionalising the creators of AI. So, so in turning um, AI into a, the, the engineering of AI, data science, into a regulated profession in the same way that lawyers, doctors, airline pilots all have to meet certain minimum levels of qualification before they're able to practice. So that's an example of where we can regulate AI, but it's not necessarily coming from a uh, single uh, legislative source in a traditional um, uh, lawmaking way. And actually what, you, what one needs to do is to build up a, an entire ecosystem of AI regulation with many different layers to it. And that's the kind of thing which it doesn't necessarily matter what, what country you're in. And sometimes ecosystems can um, overlap with other ecosystems. Um, so the, the idea of state boundaries is less important, I think, when you have these multiple different systems of, of regulation, which I think will be needed for AI in due course. I'm glad you highlighted that because um, I didn't really think of that till you just said it, which is you do need to have a, a multi-layer approach because just kind of having a, a one-trick shot really isn't going to cover something as as complex as this. You know, at like a micro level, maybe, but but certainly not at a um, at the level that we're talking about, where it's you know affecting human behavior in such a profound way that you know you have to have a creative approach, and you also want to ensure that you're not um, constantly chasing. You want you don't want to be chasing up to the technology. You actually want to, if you can, get ahead of it, but at the very least, stick with it. Um, and I think having that approach where you have professional guidelines and professional ethics, and then you have the laws themselves from the top down, um, seems like a very sensible approach. Um, and, and how you proposed, is that like as far as professional uh, guidance or guidelines or regulation, is that something that um, seems to be favored? Slightly to my surprise, not many uh, systems are, are not are, are uh, uh, appear to be that keen on on taking this on as a means of regulation I think there may be a couple of reasons for that um, one is that I think it's probably easier from a legislative perspective to focus on traditional top-down regulation um, because that is what is more the uh, usual role of, uh, of of legislators and often at least initially professional regulation comes from the professions themselves so it goes right back to the middle ages when you have the guilds of armorers the guilds of 
candlestick makers and so on banding together and deciding to create for themselves a internal set of regulations that much, much later on, hundreds of years later on, only then took on the, uh, the force of law. So for example, um, doctors and physicians and surgeons weren't regulated by law until relatively recently in the grand scheme of history. Um, and so the onus, I think, is more on uh, engineers of AI um, and data scientists and so on to create these rules. Now, there are some rules which have already been created, for example, the Association of Computer, Computer Machinery, which is a professional organization of um, AI, uh, well, not just AI, but computer scientists around the world, has got a, a code of ethics. So that's the kind of thing that one could use. It's not particularly tailored to AI. But I think one of the other reasons why this hasn't happened yet. And we have to remember that AI in its modern commercialized form has only been around for about 10 years. So we're very early on into the uh, the nature of this technology as things stand. But one of the things which makes it um, more difficult than other professions to regulate is there is not one single professional path into AI. People can become data scientists and can become programmers and computer engineers and so on um, from all different types of backgrounds and not just typical computer science backgrounds, but physics, biology, even languages and, and other types of humanities. People can go from that into working with artificial intelligence. And so because there are these multiplicities of different backgrounds that feed into the uh, group of people who are working on, on AI, that has, I think, made it more difficult for there to be a single bottleneck through which they all pass and through which one could impose these types of professional regulations. But uh, do I think it will happen at some point in the future? Yes, absolutely. I think um, this will uh, come about, whether it's as a um, initiative from industry for example, let's say a major company like Google or Microsoft saying, from now on, all of our data scientists are going to go through this minimum level of ethical training, or whether it's an a initiative from a particular government, perhaps Singapore or the UK, or maybe even somewhere like the EU, deciding to impose um, that sort of professional requirement. Uh, I can certainly see it happening, and I think as and when it does, it will be a positive development. So for the remaining, uh, for, for the rest of the time for the, for the podcast here, I, I want to talk about some of the stuff that's happened after the book, um, which by the way, I, I don't think I actually said what the book's called. It's called Robot Rules. It'll be in the, it's in the bio on the episode and, uh, you know, I'll hold it up again. But um, yeah, it's a really great book. I really enjoyed it. And um, as far as, you know, we've been talking about some concepts and, you know, just kind of more of a, yeah, more of a conceptual um, discussion so far. And, but this book was published in 2019, correct? Uh, 2018. End of 2018. And that seems like, a, I mean, that's not long ago, but it, you know, as you pointed out, you know, it's, I mean, the laws as far as AI and in, in the commercial settings only been around for 10 years. So you think three years of, of time going by, well, that's almost a third of that 10 year <laughs> period, right? You know, so it's kind of funny to think how, how fast time goes by. And so, since the publication, I guess, of the book, because um, I imagine this is, I, I imagine it took you a long time to research and write this book. It's very extensive um, and, and very well done. 
but yeah, since then, what are some of the areas that you're concerned with as far as AI um, in, in AI? In terms of my concerns, I wouldn't say that they have shifted particularly. I think the issues that I identified in terms of the unique ability of AI to take autonomous decisions and the increasing tendency to delegate important decisions to AI um, has continued much as I would have expected. There have certainly been some interesting and exciting developments in AI uh, since then. Uh, one could mention the GPT-2 and GPT-3 algorithms released by the organization OpenAI, which are to varying degrees of uh, success, able to replicate the style of any given living human author or living or dead human author um, and write on any particular topic. So you could ask this program to write in the style of Shakespeare about President Biden and it would do so. Or you could write it to ask in the style of Dr. Seuss about Elon Musk and it would write a poem on, on, on Elon Musk. And, and the results are extremely impressive. So that's been one of the technological developments that's happened. And obviously that could have major impacts in terms of things like fake news and so on. Deep fake technology has continued to um, improve, particularly using generative adversarial nets, which have been around since slightly before my, uh, my book was written. But that, that type of technology is very impressive and could be used for, uh, for negative things as well as positive things. So certainly there are examples of technology that could have potentially harmful effects and that I think illustrates some of the need for regulation. Um, but the major developments since my book have been in the realization by regulators, uh, lawmakers and societies that AI is unique because certainly when I started researching my book in 2015, 2016, most people weren't even thinking about AI. AI was just a something that you saw in science fiction. It, it was something that was in you know, Star Trek and um, uh, uh, The Terminator. Uh, and so policymakers and lawyers just weren't engaging with, with whether it needed any new laws. But now, looking, looking at the situation in late 2021, uh, the situation is very different. We have now a very advanced piece of draft legislation from the EU, which looks to regulate all aspects of AI development and use, at least in uh, fields which are deemed to be high risk. Um, we have, as we've already discussed earlier, a set of draft algorithmic recommendations from China and a set of ethical principles from the Chinese government. And the US, just in the last couple of weeks, has proposed a national AI bill of rights, as well as um, various other initiatives at the federal level and via federal organizations like the FTC and the FDA to regulate AI in particular industries. So what we've seen is a real sea change, um, a real um, growth in the knowledge and understanding of AI, uh, and it continues to be a uh, exciting area in that regard. And we're also seeing some of the first court cases where people are challenging decisions made by AI. There have been a few prior to when I wrote my book, which I cover in my book, like a decision made about a 
individual in the US as to whether he should be granted parole after having committed a crime. And that decision was made by an algorithm. He sought to challenge that unsuccessfully in the Wisconsin courts. Um, but there have been various uh, court cases since. Um, for example, I acted in a case for a group of Uber drivers who were um, sacked overnight by Uber. Their contracts were terminated by Uber based on allegations that they had um, acted fraudulently in some way. And it turned out that Uber had based these uh, supposed findings on what its fraud detection algorithms had said. But at the time, it refused to give any kind of explanation or any kind of meaningful explanation of how these decisions had been reached. So you had this slightly Kafkaesque situation for the drivers where they were accused, they were essentially convicted of this uh, wrongdoing, but they had no idea exactly what the wrongdoing was or what the thought process was that had led Uber to come to this decision. So that's an example of the kinds of challenges that we're now increasingly seeing where people say, hang on, this AI is making decisions about us, but we want to understand how these decisions have been made and whether these decisions are fair. So those are, are the major developments, I think, that have, uh, have been happening in the past few years. And I would expect that trend to continue. I get asked this question all the time whenever I, I mention AI and, and you, Dr. Abbott's been on the podcast several times. Uh, so we, we always tend to get into this topic a little bit and people ask me and I'm like, well, I don't know, go ask that guy. And it's like, well, why don't you go ask that guy? And I go, oh, okay, I can do that. So I got you here so I can ask you some of these things. Um, but as far as, it obviously gets a lot of attention um, in the media, uh, but self-driving cars and the, seems to be, you know, there, there's an argument for the fact that is it really becoming more popular or is it just getting more media coverage? You know, so there, that's a whole other line of, of thought to get into. But regardless, uh, people are interested in it. And since I have you here, I'm going to ask you about it. Uh, Self-driving cars and, well, I guess I kind of throw a few things at you. You know, um, how quickly is this technology approaching? And, and as far as regulating and understanding that uh, technology, where, where are we at right now? You're right to say that self-driving cars get a lot of airtime, and I think that's for, for a couple of reasons, partly because they are accessible, they're easy to, to understand, at least at a superficial level, um, and also it's the kind of technology that we've seen being portrayed in uh, the media, um, in fiction, for a very long time. So I think, I think there are obvious reasons why self-driving cars get a lot of coverage. Instead of just being one technology, though, they are multiple different technologies which are all working together, some of which work quite well, some of which still don't work particularly well. So <clears throat> technology involved in keeping a car in its lane as it travels, that's pretty advanced and it's not that complicated, at least when you're driving on a motorway, whereas technology for seeing, so computer vision, and also the use of uh, short-range radar and LIDAR, um, other forms of sensors, in order to detect the environment around cars. That is improving, but is still not uh, perfect by any means. Um, and technology for interpreting that type of information and turning that information into instructions for a vehicle. That is where we uh, have seen, I think, the greatest 
difficulties because <clears throat> there are, it turns out, um, very many complex interactions which can all look quite different to a computer system, but which a human is with relative ease able to uh, to group together and to uh, to understand um, in ways which, as yet, uh, computer systems haven't been able to do or haven't been able to do as effectively. And there are quite a few examples of, of, of this where people have uh, found ways or discovered ways in which AI is ineffective, for example, where a self-driving car sees a reflection in a pool of water, it thinks that that reflection is the reality as opposed to just a reflection, whereas a, a human would relatively easily be able to, uh, to work out that it's, it's seeing a reflection in a pool of water. So <clears throat> those sorts of issues have created the greatest difficulty for AI in terms of self-driving cars as a general purpose um, uh, uh, type of vehicle. And I think it's worth thinking also about um, the way in which our roads and our cities are built. They're not built for self-driving cars, just as was the case several hundred years ago when our roads and our cities were not built for automobiles. They were built for horses and carts because that was the general means of transport up until around about 1880, 1890. So the infrastructure around self-driving cars is crucial. And it may be that we're unable to crack self-driving cars until we start to redesign cities around them in order that, um, that, that these sorts of difficult decisions where you've got crossings that, um, that lots of people could step out in front of and so on, and complex and confusing things for self-driving cars, and those can be eliminated or pushed into pedestrianised areas or similar. Now, it's extremely difficult, at least in a democracy, to simply redesign a city because people live in their houses and uh, they don't want to move where their businesses are and there are laws on property rights and so on. Um, and actually one, one good example of this is uh, the city of London when it burnt down in 1666. Um, there was an initiative to completely redesign the city to, um, to make it like Paris or New York, where it's all on a very logical grid system with big wide boulevards. And all of the people of London, all the shopkeepers and so on, they said, no, 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 we don't want these wide boulevards. We just want to have our shops and our buildings back where they were. And that's why London has a particularly uh, illogical medieval system of streets, uh, which some would say is, is, is rather charming. But that's, that's exactly the kind of issue that we have with AI and with self-driving cars today. So one of the reasons why in many contexts they, are, they haven't taken on as, as, as quickly as we, we might have thought they would do is because the infrastructure just doesn't fit them. That said, in certain areas, um, I think we are likely to see self-driving cars or at least self-driving vehicles, perhaps put it in a better, uh, uh, more, more accurate sense. For example, within warehouses, it's quite well publicised that Amazon uses self-driving vehicles because that's a very, they can completely design the environment in their warehouses around those self-driving vehicles. Um, likewise, on building sites, um, one can use self-driving trucks and so on to um, uh, to, to move heavy things around because you can design a building site around the, the needs of those self-driving vehicles. And also on longer journeys, there's a, um, certainly in the UK and I think globally, 
a shortage of haulier drivers, of heavy goods vehicle drivers. I think those sorts of labor shortages are likely to push forward technological investment um, in things like self-driving technology for heavy goods vehicles. And typically heavy goods vehicles will do a lot of their, their journeys on motorways, which are easier to design self-driving cars for than um, in cities where things are more, more complex. So it, it is a patchy picture, but in certain areas, um, self-driving cars are already, or self-driving vehicles are already well established and will continue to be so. Whereas in other areas like driving into cities, driving around small streets, driving around the countryside, um, I, I think that will continue to be fairly slow. And we're unlikely to see a wholesale replacement of, of, of humans for some decades to come, would be my prediction. So there you go. There's there's self-driving cars for you. <laughs> um, I think that's a perfect place to stop, actually, uh, for, for, for time for today. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it was great talking to you today, Jacob. And uh, I, I know uh, even just reading your your bio there, I'm like, geez, we could have done a whole podcast on on you working for uh, as a speechwriter and and as a clerk. God, I find that stuff so interesting, so cool. Um, but yeah, it was a pleasure having you on here today and and talking about a whole bunch of stuff. And it was it was great for me to listen. So thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Marcus. I've really enjoyed chatting to you.